Good morning. Uh, welcome to the January Family Chapel. It's, it's very nice of you to make room for all these people who are going to come later. <laughs> Just kind, how thoughtful. Um, everyone caught their breath yet from the holidays? Takes, takes a little bit. Takes a little bit. Back to, back to routine helps, at least helps me. Um, before we begin the chapel service, uh, I want to acknowledge Pam Stelting's help on the piano. Not just today, but for at least as long as we've been doing these. Um, if, uh, if my count's correct, I'm finishing up my 10th year as chaplain, and um, we had, used to have morning and evening chapels, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And it's since we've been having these monthly family uh, chapels Pam has played and uh, has been, uh, you know, well, you know how well she plays, so I'm, I'm not ever afraid. I'm afraid when she doesn't show up. But, uh, so I just, I just wanted to acknowledge all that she's contributed. We have a guest with us this evening, or this evening, this morning. Uh, Dr. Jim Bond is General Superintendent Meredith Church in Nazarene. He's really our, a, a brother in Christ and a friend of the college and uh, made, room in his, made room in his life to, to minister to us today. So would you welcome him? Heart, soul, all for you alone. That's our prayer. It's also our confession. And it is our declaration of our need of you. Heart, soul, all for you alone. We're grateful that you make that possible. We're thankful that you accept what we have to give to you and then shape it into your likeness. We give you praise for all that you do through us as we serve you here, for the lives that are impacted, for the changes that are wrought, for the things we're not, we're not aware of, but you are. Accept what we do for your sake as we serve you in this place. Pray. And thank you for our brother, for our leader, for his influence on the church and his influence on this college and, and those who are connected with it. And well, I pray that these songs of testimony and his words and your spirit and your word will help us all to better fill uh, what we've just sung um, to, to the glory of God. We pray it in, in the name of the one who makes it happen. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, my brother, and good morning, cherished friends, esteemed colleagues in ministry, and brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Thanks for the invitation to be here today. I always enjoy coming. Very comfortable being here. I wish I could sit and look where you're looking, and I wouldn't have to look at the preacher. I could just see the great handiwork of God. <laughs> Last summer, uh, General Assembly, I uh, was invited to give the devotional 
uh, I think it was Wednesday morning. So I gave the devotional, had uh, for me kind of an overwhelming positive response to it, so I, uh, I thought it's too good to just share here and there. I'm going to write a book about that. But I'm going to wait now till I, be an, I become an old man before I do it. I just don't have time to do it now. So uh, I, uh, I, I share it with you this morning. It, uh, I'll have to hurry. There's nine points to the sermon, and it's a pretty long introduction before I get to the nine points. So uh, what do I have, 30 minutes? Hang on. My text, and incidentally, this is, uh, well, let me just simply say this is my story. As, as a son of the church, the church of the Nazarene. You have your story, we all have our stories, so I just spent a little time trying to write my story, and that's what I gave at the General Assembly. My text is well suited to what we've sung about this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. No one who has ever had an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ can ever be the same again. <laughs> that truth has been verified across almost seven decades in my life now. It all started at a Nazarene altar at the age of five when I knelt and my pastor's wife, my Sunday school teacher, said, Jimmy, why don't you just open the door of your heart and invite Jesus in? And I did. I, my, my first thoughts about Jesus were very warm and wonderful, compelling, wooing, drawing and beckoning me. I, uh, Think probably with you the first song I ever learned to sing was Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. Used to sing another old song, oh how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Well, those songs just gave expression to what was going on in my life. So as a child Jesus spoke to me. It was not an audible voice obviously. It was a gentle urging. It was an inner light showing the way. It was a sweet, tender, continuous nudging within my heart to do the right. It's what we call prevenient grace, which we Wesleyans, we Nazarenes believe is at work in the heart of every person, six and a half plus billion who walk on the face of God's green earth today. Well, it drew me like a magnet into life's most profound relationship. I marvel when I think of that. That as a five-year-old child, I entered into a personal, vital relationship with the great creator, redeemer, God of the universe. Incidentally, those of you who are working to train pastors need to be reminded of a fact that Susie Schellenberger gave in our Sunday school class, so I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. She said 80% of, of those who are Christians make the decision before the age of 19. So unless we're reaching the young folks, this old denomination of ours has no future. 
And we have to focus on that in our local churches, obviously. Well, by inviting Jesus into my heart, I moved instantly from an estranged relationship with Jesus caused by our common sinful condition which plagues the human race into a glorious, saving relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Was it a dramatic experience in my life? No, not really. But very subtly, it changed the whole focus of my life. Call it new birth, if you will. It marked for me the entrance point, the beginning of a new kind of life. I fell in love, not with just some lovely thought concocted in the human mind. I fell in love not with some vague abstraction about a mysterious God being out there somewhere. I fell in love with Jesus, the person. <laughs> And being almost 70 years this side of that decision, I can tell you with deep conviction, Jesus knows how to deal with children. Bless his holy name. Took me tenderly by the hand and simply said, follow me. So I began following Jesus. In my fumbling, faltering, adolescent kind of way, sometimes following very, very closely, sometimes at distance and sometimes, yes, ever so briefly lured aside by our subtle, sinister enemy. But he was always there. Just reach out and take me by the hand and say, it's okay, come on, just keep following. And so I did. And then one day in the springtime of my 15th year, he came there and spoke clearly. He said, you've been walking with me virtually all your life now been an enjoyable relationship, but now we're ready to take it to a deeper level. Even though you're living with me in a saving relationship, the disposition to want to rule your own life yet remains within you. This carnal disposition wars against my spirit within you. It seeks to be in control, and I want to be in control of your life. And the quality of our relationship depends on your decision now. <laughs> well, I don't have time to go into that. You've heard me tell some about this. I said, Jesus, I, I, you know I love you as Savior and I'm willing to do anything. And that's when he asked me about the basketball. Fifteen-year-old kid, it's my life. I've told that story, haven't I? I don't, I don't have time to tell this morning. I'll come back next year if I'm here. Well, it was this experience where I, I loved the basketball so much. He wanted the basketball, so I, I had to be willing to yield the basketball to him. Little did I realize when I, when I did that that I'd make the second most critically important decision of my life. A decision that I believe is absolutely essential to the relationship, which is the theme that I'm working on this morning. You see, in that moment, Jesus became more than just Savior. He became the ruling disposition, the dominating concentration. He became the focal point of my entire life. Old self-rule life was cleansed. I was filled, I believe, with the very spirit of the Lord Jesus himself. To be filled with the Spirit of Jesus is to have His disposition. 
Pretty good rendition. Morris Weigel tells me it's his. He studied that, let this mind be in you over the years. The NIV says, let this, you, you should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Morris says the best rendition he believes is the word disposition. You're just going to stick with the one word. Your disposition should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Well, with the disposition of Jesus through the Spirit indwelling me, now authentic Christ-like living becomes a glorious possibility, and I testify that it was a definite experience in my life. Call it entire sanctification, if you will. It was a passage that took me to new depths of greater joy and more fulfillment in the relationship. I had moved from conflicted leadership of my life to acknowledgement of Christ's oversight of every aspect of my life. You can call it life in the spirit of Jesus or life under the lordship of Jesus. But now I can say with deeper meaning than ever before, to me to live is Christ. So I've been living under his rule virtually all of my life. Had to work through a lot of stuff. And that's what I want to quickly get to. A few reflections and observations about the relationship. The years have taught me that the relationship is of ultimate importance. Not the experiences. Not even the experiences of new birth and entire sanctification. Those experiences I view as passages that are absolutely necessary in the life of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I concur with our traditional understanding of sanctification as being both an instantaneous experience and a gradual, lifelong process. Now, my take on the history of the Church of the Nazarene with regard to this particular subject is that in our earlier years, we probably emphasized the experience of entire sanctification to the neglect of the process. Then one day, we awakened to that fact, and as is always the tendency, we overcorrected, and the pendulum went clear to the other side, where for many years, we've emphasized the process to the neglect of the experience. I could talk a long time here, <laughs> but simply let me say now is the time I think in the history of our church and in the kind of world we live in today to strike a healthy biblical balance and acknowledge that both the experience and the ongoing progressive experiences of, of being entirely sanctified are absolutely essential to the relationship. Number two. I've come to believe that the relationship is all about Jesus. It's all about living in Him, living for Him, and living like Him through His indwelling Spirit. It means to worship Jesus, love Jesus, think Jesus, talk Jesus, live Jesus. That's what holiness is all about. And I've reached the conclusion that of the many profound and helpful terms that we might use in describing scriptural holiness. For me, the best one is Christ-likeness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. It's the ultimate definition. No higher definition. I think it is a definition that, that has far-reaching theological implications, but it's also our most winsome and engaging term. Profound but simple and one which resonates with postmoderns. Ultimately, I think it's God's definition of who he wants us to be and what he wants us to be like. 
Don't have time to linger. Number three, the relationship is not about perfectionism. Perfectionism, an issue with which many of us have wrestled over the years. I confess that I was held captive, inwardly driven by the compelling notion that moral and spiritual perfection can and should be attained in this life. It became for me kind of an, an obsessive striving, and the end result was frustration and defeat. Jesus spoke to me and said, hey, back off, relax. You're never going to be perfect. I am the only perfect one in this relationship. So just keep your eyes on me and keep following and I will work on perfecting you. I think that's what you're working on this entire, uh, is this just this term or is it the rest of the year? Huh? You've been working on it all year already, huh? Good. <laughs> we are being transformed into Christ-likeness, being transformed into Christ-likeness. I years ago read a, a book on the 12 disciples and, and the differences in these 12 and uh, I don't remember the, the author of the book now or much about the book except I remember he said in the, in the preface, Christians are not cast into molds, they're chiseled out like statues. Not cookie cutter Christians, we're all individual. I am a person God is making like a statue, God is shaping, God is molding me, correcting God's intent on my perfecting. <laughs> so no, I'm never going to be perfect in this world, but he is working on me to make me more and more into the image of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. Number four, the relationship is not about legalism, which very simply stated is seeking God's approval through living by rules. As a young guy aspiring to live a holy life, I had to work through the debilitating notion that to be holy essentially meant living by a list of prohibitions. We call them general rules and special rules. Thank God we've changed the title now at least. We call it the covenant of Christian conduct in the manual. Oh, I believe in prohibitions. You cannot live like Jesus in this kind of a world without prohibitions in your life. Never has it been so, so necessary that Christians learn how to make good, critical, sound, moral decisions. So Jesus came to me and said, Jim, <laughs> you have to learn to resist evil if you're going to be holy. But evil is sometimes very subtle. It's not easily recognizable, which means that decision-making about right and wrong can be very difficult. So. Come close, follow me, and I will teach you daily by helping you to learn to make value judgments between good and evil, between good and half good, between good and great. My goal for you always is that you will make great moral decisions. But he didn't stop there. He said, remember always that the relationship is based on grace, not on legalistic adherence to religious rules. And also, he didn't stop at that point. He said, I want you to go out and get involved in doing good to others. Because the more you get involved in doing good to others, the less you'll be distracted by the temptations to sin. 
And I want you to be known not so much by what you don't do as by what you do. Greatest portrait of Jesus ever painted, I think, in the scriptures, in the Acts of the Apostles, where they said of Jesus, he went around doing good. <laughs> he went around doing good, and he expects that of you and me if we're going to be like him. So he said to me, go out into your world, be my power and presence among your friends and families, among the disadvantaged and the marginalized. Allow my spirit to flow in you and through you. Love the lost and the broken and the hopeless. Always be motivated by love, guided by justice, act with compassion. This is the Jesus way, the way I expect you to live. Number five, the relationship is not about sinless perfection. Now, we Nazarenes, we holiness people have been accused of believing in sinless perfection. I hope you've read Wesley's uh, plain account of Christian perfection. Because in there the question is raised, is the term sinless perfection proper? And he said clearly, I do not approve of that expression. And he discouraged its use among his followers. We should not use or even consider this matter of, 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 of sinless perfection as though it were a possibility for us. I confess that concept held me captive for many years. Single act of sin brought defeat. And the relationship degenerated into a kind of spiritual game where if you land on the wrong square, you're required to go back to the beginning and start all over again. Well, in my frustration, Jesus spoke to me. He said, Jimmy, I want to liberate you from this false thinking that's keeping you on this spiritual roller coaster. And he referred me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Do you know those verses? Are they in your mind and in your heart and in your, in your life? I wish someone when I was a young guy, a teenager, would have taught me the truth of 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you, that you do not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. And he's the atonement for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Hallelujah. Make no mistake about the fact that the, the word from, from the Scripture is clear. Sin not. That is God's word, and I, I'm not sure that we sound it as clearly as we should from our pulpits today. Sin not. We're not to sin. It's like U.S. Airways flight what was it, 1549, they went down into Hudson River out of New York City a few months ago. Sin, like that terrible tragedy, is not on the schedule. We don't plan on it. It is not the sin of probability, it's the sin of possibility. Sin may occur even in the life of a saved and sanctified believer. What are we to do if we sin? Well, we do not deny the reality of a holy life simply because we've committed a single act of sin. I love E. Stanley Jones. I don't know how many books he wrote, 35 or 40, and I read a bunch of them. Jones, great missionary uh, to India, but uh, Christian statesman really hobnobbed with many of the prominent people in our world during his time. In one of his books, he says, victorious living does not mean that we may not occasionally lapse into a wrong act, which may be called a sin. 
At that point, we may have lost a skirmish. It does not mean we might not still win the battle. We may even lose a battle, still win the war. I like that. There's more to the quote. I don't have time for it. Second thing I would say is don't let that single sin set you adrift. I'm concerned because so many Christians don't seem to have a lot of vitality and victory in their lives today. Why? Well, maybe because they've failed to deal with sin. And I think, frankly, the Church of the Nazarene has done a poor job in teaching holiness people how to deal with sin if it happens. So how do we deal with it? My dear children, sin not. <laughs> All the thunder of heaven comes in those words. But if anybody does sin, glory be to God for that but. If anybody does sin, what do we do? Well, we, we look first of all at the glorious truth here. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He's not at the right hand of God today to condemn us. He's there to make the case for us. Boy, that's good news. It's, it's the kind of news I wish every young person in the church could get a hold of and grasp. Here's my take on it all. The moment we realize that God, the Holy Spirit, has convicted us of the act of sin, we turn immediately to God. Confess the sin. Forsake the sin. Renounce the sin. Try to learn a lesson from it so that it does not recur in our lives. And by faith believe that we are forgiven and we pick up at that point and we move straight ahead in the relationship. Don't have to go back and start all over again. <laughs> you just pick up right at that point and move forward. Oh yes, holiness in humankind is not sinless perfection. Well, how am I doing? I'm moving along. I'm at six now. The relationship has to be faithfully nurtured and cultivated and, and lived out every day of our lives. I, I think in Matthew and, and Mark, Jesus is quoted as saying, take up your cross and follow me. Luke is the one who says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul said, I die daily. It's a process every day, every moment of every day. When I was elected superintendent, I said, Lord, give me a message I can preach to the church. And I, I preached it everywhere I went around the world for eight years. Marvelous little verse there in Ephesians 5.18. Don't have time to go into that at all, except we render it in the, in the English. Be filled with the Spirit. But you know it doesn't literally say that. It's present continuous tense. So it says be being filled. So as important as the experiences are, entire sanctification certainly included. And not going to last for life. You live from that moment forward daily, walking with Jesus, going to the fountain of grace every day. Yesterday he helped me. Today he did the same. How long will this continue? Forever. Praise his name. It's a daily kind of thing, walking with him, being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ every day. Number seven, the relationship is intensely personal, but not private. Intensely personal, but not private. The holiness 
that is required of you and me is too difficult to do alone. We need the church. We need each other. We need to live in the relationship of love and nurture and accountability. Christ-likeness of heart and life is best accomplished in community. That's why God established the church. And that's why people have to be a part of the church and, 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 and small groups, if you will. Wesley's no great genius. It came out of the New Testament church as well, I believe, that we have to be living in close harmony and relationship with each other. Well, number eight, the relationship is built on trust. All relationships are built on trust. And I tell you, my friends, I've learned over time Jesus can be trusted. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Talking about trust calls to mind the doctrine of Christian assurance. John Wesley, of course, made much of the witness of the Spirit. And he said the testimony, the witness of the Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit is an inward impression on the soul whereby the Spirit of God directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God that Jesus Christ has loved me and given himself for me, that all my sins are blotted out, and I, even I, am reconciled to God. And the Spirit witnesses and gives evidence that we are indeed the children of God. Well, it's well known, of course, that Wesley's understanding of, of, of Christian assurance was modified considerably over time. I shouldn't say considerably. It was modified some over time. But for me, there's a great, witness, there's a great mystery about the witness of the Spirit. I confess I, don't, I do not fully understand it. It's kind of like, uh, I was in San Diego for many years, it's kind of like watching the ebb and the flow of the tides. They come and they go. And I confess that's been, that's been the way it has been with me in my life, with the, with the witness of the Spirit. It's been like the tides that come and they go. I wish I could say I've been conscious of it every moment of every day. Oh, I haven't. To be honest, probably the tide has been out more than it's been in. What do you do when the tide's out? <laughs> well, here's what I do. I, I believe in the, th the authority of this book, and I believe that God, through his word, keeps me strong and keeps me true even when the tide is out, and I've discovered that his word can be trusted completely. They attribute these lines to Martin Luther. I, I don't know. They rhyme pretty well in the English. I don't know how they did in the, in the German. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the Word of God, and naught else is worth believing. Though all my soul should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, I know one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. So I'll trust in God's unchanging word to soul and body sever. For though all earth will pass away, his word will stand forever. Amen. Hallelujah. So when the tide is out, boy, I trust the wonderful word of God that we have. Well, I have one last thing to say, and I'll say it quickly. The relationship is forever. For to me to live as Christ, and to die is gain. What in the world does that mean? It means eternal life. It means new heavens, new earth. It means a new body. 
It means all of that, and best of all, it means Jesus. For me to live is Christ, here and now, but in ever-deepening measure beyond my finite capabilities to even begin to imagine. He will be my life for all eternity. What a thought. What a hope. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me, and you would say the same in this world. Jesus, he's the best thing that's happened to us. I, I cannot even imagine in my mind what it will be for you and me and all believers in the world to come to be with Jesus and, and realize him in ever-deepening measure throughout the endless ages of eternity. I can hardly wait. Can you imagine what it'll be like the first moment you see him? Just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Glory be to God. <laughs> That's our hope, isn't it? Oh, that will be glory for me. Well, this is the holiness in which I live and in which I believe with all of my heart, about which I'm passionate. I think we have to make it practical. We have to make it livable for people in these days if we're going to preach it. So it's what I believe. It's the holiness in which I believe. It's all about Jesus. He is the one from whom I've come. He is the one to whom one day I will go, and that forever. And he is the one in whom I live in vital relationship on this Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. Amen. Glory be to God. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Cluck says I have two minutes left, so that's enough time to sing a little song before we go. Thanks, Alan. God bless you all. and the power and the spirit of the one whose love for us will never die and makes it possible for us to love him in return. Go in his peace. We're just